welcome Eric Anderson. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the Geospatial Index as the Chief Technical Officer of Synmax. Um, perhaps we can get straight into it and hear the elevator pitch for Synmax. Yeah, thanks for having me, Will. Um, the elevator pitch is pretty quick. So um, essentially, we are a satellite intelligence data company. We um, are taking advantage of the large proliferation of the number of commercial satellites and requisite data that's coming down to Earth um, and transforming that into SaaS products for companies and governments interested in uh, you know, solving a particular problem. Yep. Okay. I think that was about uh, an elevator ride's worth of um, pitching there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends on on which floor you're going to, but I think that about works. And we can, you know, we can unpack that a bit more. Um, there's there's definitely a lot to talk to there. But yeah, in terms of elevator pitch, I think that's about it. Sure. I, I guess maybe a way into it um, is the niche um, that you either dominate or seek to dominate. Um, have you got any comments about that? Sure. So I think our niche is one that was never intended to be. Um, five to 10 years ago, back when a lot of the satellite companies that now have stuff in orbit um, today were looking to raise money, they were always saying, we're not going to be imagery companies, we're going to be data companies. We're not going to just sell pixels, we are going to sell solutions. And that's a very appealing pitch to investors because then you get to control the most valuable part of the value chain, which is the end customer, right? Um, the problem they ran into, in my opinion, is they discovered that rocket science is hard enough um, and that data science is a specialty unto itself. So you've got a lot of companies now, and um, I believe Planet Labs is one of them that has kind of pivoted to a partner model, which is that they are selling the data. They are selling, um, you know, simple abstractions of the data, but they are relying on a growing ecosystem of companies like Synmax to try and pull the full value out of that data and sell it directly into particular industries. And that is the niche, which I think we discovered on accident. My background is energy trading. Um, and when I was a quantitative analyst at a natural gas hedge fund, I discovered that there was tremendous value to be pulled out of these satellite images in tracking oil and gas assets and using it to predict the future of energy markets. Um, and, you know, once we discovered the niche existed there. We have just expanded from there and, and found an entire universe of possibilities. Right. Okay. So I'm excited. I, my the, the excitement's been building a bit over the past few interviews that I've done on the podcast, um, and it's all kind of been been driven um, through through Twitter. I guess I, I've gone on a few tracks with the podcast. Um, for a while there, I was looking at generative AI because it was all the rage. Um, we did Maps GPT. Um, I'm in the UK, so um, a highlight really, um, and where it kind of ended on that track was Ordnance Survey, a company started in 1791. Um, so that was an interesting contrast. Um, but the latest track seems to be sort of starting from the fact that most of the uh, Earth observation SPACs have essentially dropped, um, well, 80, 70 percent. Um, yeah, and it's quite incredible. Yeah. Some even more than that, some of the 90s. Right. Yeah. So I guess trying to, and I, you having a trading background, I can, yeah, um, I think uh, we, we can share some excitement there, um, <laughs> or at least understanding. I, I'm not um, sure it's exciting, but it's definitely interesting. 
maybe especially if you if you're unfortunate enough to put your money down on some of them um but i guess what i'm trying to say is i well another part of the story is that and how this podcast started was um making an index of the world's public traded geospatial companies um and i'm up to 190 plus now 27 odd exchanges last time i checked um and it's 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 kind of a, a combination of this passion I have to do with equities analysis um, only because that's what my training says I should do. I should, shouldn't dabble in trading. Um, I should buy and hold forever um, equities. So I'm trying to combine this thing that I'm doing outside of work with, you know, this profession I have as a geospatial consultant. Um, and that's kind of led me in the direction of a new field called ge or spatial finance. Um, and then what started to emerge sort of organically i wasn't intending to turn it into a spatial finance podcast but in the last chat um i had with gabe from umbra um oh, yeah. we Great yeah time. started yeah talking about how and he's the he's in marketing so of course he would say this um but i think it's true um a key to getting an edge in trading um is geospatial analytics um and so i've talked with also luke fisher from Skyfi and I think um, Sinmax and Skyfi uh, joined at the hip somehow. Um, <laughs> maybe I can let you do some talking. <laughs> yeah, us and Skyfi have a very close relationship. They're a partner company of us. We love working with them. Um, we share a common origin story. Um, Skyfi was actually originally an idea developed in Sinmax, and um, we decided uh, that it was deserving of its own company, and so they spun out, and they're now a separate entity from us. But we maintain a strong relationship and. Uh, share a lot of common investors with each other. So uh, I know Luke, great guy. I know a lot of people over at SkyFi, uh, fantastic group. And I think what they're doing is very in keeping with our mission for Earth observation, which is, you know, there is enormous potential, like you alluded to, not just in the trading world, but in a lot of different industries. But we need to, and this is a buzzword, democratize the imagery. Um, I think that, you know, the story I was telling earlier about these companies wanting to go completely to the end of the value chain has created an unintended consequence that they have not been as open and easy to get data out of as they probably should have now that they're pivoting over to this new business model. Um, that's part of the reason for the stock declines is that transition is creating a lot of um, difficulty for the companies as they now know that they need to rely on this, this other link in the chain, so to speak, right, um, in order to, to make their vision really come to fruition. Um, and what SkyFi is doing and what Synmax believes in as well is that you know the imagery has been too difficult to get and so the world has underappreciated its value um if if it was you know as simple as going onto a website like you can on skyfi and buying an image and downloading it and performing you know any types of analysis on it we would see a lot more applications of it today than there currently are so synmax is working at it from the commercial SaaS side of it skyfi is working at it from the ad, uh, angle of let's get this imagery into people's hands so they can discover cool uses for it um, so I guess you were talking about shared investors or, or co-founders, um, the origin team um, behind both Synmax and SkyFi. Um, you said you're an energy trader. Are there any other um, vaguely well-known energy, energy traders um, that are behind these two companies that mm. listeners might like to know about? Um, funny you bring that up. So Bill Perkins is president of both companies, and he's also the primary investor and primary owner of both companies. And it really was his vision uh, that created both ideas, right? So when I was back at a natural gas hedge fund, I was a quantitative analyst for Bill. He is 
I think most people would agree the number one natural gas trader in the world right now. Um, you know, his fund has generated, you know, incredible returns. And, you know, th th I'm not saying anything secret here. You can look in the Wall Street Journal, right? This is 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 very, um, uh, very impressive what Skylar has achieved. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, Bill is a visionary and he can kind of see around those corners and understand what's coming next in the marketplace. And I think he's a very early adopter and a visionary in the Earth observation space. Um, so, you know, that's why he's identified those two opportunities slash problems with EO uh, in that, you know, we need more SaaS companies to kind of ferry this imagery into the hands of decision makers, right? Form it into products that people want rather than delivering pixels, deliver answers. And then also we need to just make satellite imagery more available. And, you know, that became Synmax and SkyFi accordingly. My, so I, I kind of got an inkling that the tide's turning a bit um, in geospatial and, and Earth's observation when Luke Fisher said he'd come from Uber. And so I, I, I got the impression that um, what business people in the industry seem to be realizing is that they need to pull people from other industries where problems uh, that occur at scale have been solved um, and they can bring these people in um, to, to just start looking at the, the problems that the current batch of people that have been battling on in, in geospatial and Earth observation haven't been able to solve. Another inkling I got that there's a change that's happening um, in the industry is that um, charismatic, well-known visionary types like Bill Perkins um, are coming in and uh, sensing the opportunity um, in what our industry um, has to offer and are starting to assemble teams I guess, um, around problems that he and organizations like uh, that he he runs um, need solved so that they can get answers um, and generate an edge. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really exciting um, for me in, in this little podcast um, to start to connect the dots and move between um, these different organizations from, for example, Skyfire to Umbra, um, now to, to Synmax talking with you. Um, so I guess as an insider um, and someone with uh, the background in finance and having passed the CFA exam, things like that, um, what does it feel like from the inside? Do you guys think um, that any meaningful progress has happened? Yes, I do. I think, like I was saying earlier, the industry is transitioning from uh, fully. It's ironic. You usually go the other way. Right. You usually, you know, take the segments and put them together into vertical integration for efficiencies. But this is splitting up, um, you know, from companies that were aiming to be fully vertically integrated into companies that are more specialized. Um, and I think that is a turning point for Earth observation. I agree with your assessment that the fact that people like Luke and Bill Perkins have um, pushed so many chips in to the industry, you know, does um, is an indicator of a turning point. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we are likely to see uh, this space mature a lot more, but it's going to take time, right? You were talking earlier about the unfortunate declines that we've seen in Earth observation companies. Um, and that is just a reflection of the reality that what they're selling, there is unfortunately more supply than there is demand for right now. Um, and you know, the end consumer is uninterested really in where the data comes from. They just want the data to solve their problem. They want it to be accurate and they want it to be cost effective. And there are a lot of steps that have to occur between generating pixels on the ground 
and creating those solutions for those companies. And it is very complex and it requires industry expertise. I think one of the big biases that pretty much everybody has is they seem to think that everybody else's business is simpler than it actually is. As an outsider looking in, you can say, oh, insurance, that's simple, right? You collect premiums from customers and then you pay out whatever there's claims, right? Like that's not a complicated business. We could totally do that. And I love that ambition. And I love the fact that people um, want to try and bring a new perspective to industries in order to disrupt and create additional value. But I think it also requires a degree of humility that is often missed um, and appreciation for the nuances and complexities of particular interests. So something we do at Sidmax is we hire directly in the industries that we are looking to build products for rather than, you know, just pull in the standard myriad of ex-Google engineers who are, um, you know, great computer scientists and great AI engineers um, and say, we're smarter than everybody else. Therefore, we're going to solve all your problems for you. And I guess there might be a few more than usual of those getting around given the layoffs. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I never like seeing layoffs. I do feel like you know tech was in a bit of a bubble and there was an overbuild. Um, you know, it's always a sad thing when you see disruption like that and it's laying off. But um, you know, this does provide additional talent on the market on the market to potentially more useful uses. Uh, you've begun to look at how you're working backwards from customer needs. Um, so I remember when I chatted with Luke, he said he has his staff literally get out of the building. Um, so what does working backwards from customer needs look like for, for Synmax? Um, well, we've in addition to hiring further. people from inside the industry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. no, it's fine. And we, we've taken it one step further than the Skyfire. We don't even have a building. So we are <laughs> out. Yeah, we're, uh, um, you know, we, we launched during COVID and this is a little bit of an aside. I'll get to your question in a second. Oh, good. Um, and, you know, the entire world was working remote and it was working very well. I think the remote work experiment has proved that there is a lot of value um, and, letting people work from home and then, you know, your employees can be trusted to get things done. In fact, in many cases, I think people are more productive working from home. Um, so yeah, we never bothered to get an office. It's something that, you know, now that our team is growing and, you know, to the high thirties, low forties, we're looking at doing, but it's, it's always just going to be a place of occasional collaboration, not like a traditional office. Um, so getting back to your question about how do we work backwards from customer needs? Well, like I was saying earlier, we hire directly into the industries, right? So we understand those needs very natively. Um, I come from energy trading. Um, you know, a lot of the original founding members of Synmax come from energy trading, right? They, they came in from the hedge fund as well. And so we are intimately aware of the nuances of, you know, the energy infrastructure and where the gaps are that can be filled, you know, like an outsider may not be able to understand. And so it's much easier for us um, yeah, having built up those decades of experience to know exactly where to point the satellite, so to speak, right, to extract the value. Whereas I, I think others have been a lot less successful because they haven't had that kind of insight. Um, and then the same thing is true with maritime intelligence, too. So our CEO, Brendan Moore, um, he is the former head of intelligence for the NCA, which for your listeners that are not familiar with the UK, is the national crime agency, kind of the equivalent of the FBI for the UK extremely knowledgeable. He spent wow. his career. Yeah, he spent That's his quite career. A hire. <laughs> yes, it is. We were extremely lucky to get him. Um, and it's it's also, uh, another aside, <laughs> it's also um, helped us discover that there is an enormous pool of talent in Europe that we didn't know existed before uh, because his network extends across Europe. And so, um, you know, if, if I were doing this on my own, uh, I would have, you know, put out job ads around the U.S. and um, probably hired a bunch of people in Houston, Austin, 
San Diego, right? Uh, or sorry, San Francisco. But it turns out there's a tremendous amount of tech talent that I think a lot of American companies may, may not recognize in Europe. And we have been very successful in making hires there. Um, anyways, yeah, getting back to it. So his expertise, right? He spent his career looking for dark vessels that were bringing drugs into the UK. And so he has an extreme um, knowledge set in this field that, again, lets us identify the gaps in where the existing surveillance technologies are and cater products directly to them. Right. So uh, this is another theme that's emerging. This, this whole, it's really interesting, this, my, my whole effort with this podcast. And I had a, I, I, I have to confess an unsuccessful attempt to start a, a spatial networking uh, event in, in London called London Mapper. But for the few people that did come, um, what you've just said about these dark vessels, that's another theme. So I think it's Geolytics. They might be a Bristol um, geospatial firm. Um, when I was in Bristol, I, I started Bristol Map Up there. Through that, I um, came across someone from Geolytics. It seems like there's this like uh, sub-industry of um, trying to solve this problem um, of... Yeah. We I hope guess, it'll become yeah. a, more than a sub-industry soon. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the dark vessel problem has been around for a long time, right? As long as shipping has been along, uh, there's been a dark vessel problem. Just uh, right. simple identification on the ocean is not as straightforward as I think people would expect it to be. Um, and there have been a number of attempts to solve it, but my opinion is, is that the technology to do so on a commercial front um, has not been available until this recent proliferation of commercial satellites has come to fruition. Now that we have so many assets in space, which you can commercially task and um, download data from, like Umbra, like Planets, Planetscope Constellation, um, it is now a solvable problem. That doesn't mean it's an easy problem, by the way, and, and perhaps that's why there's so many of these companies that are trying to crack that nut. And I think, you know, Synbax, I can make the argument for why we believe we have found the unique approach that is going to do so. Um, but because of this environment where there is such an obvious problem and there is a newly available set of tools to solve it, um, yeah, we're going to see a lot of, uh, of companies emerging, um, you know, hoping to do just that. And I think the pie is big enough that many of us, if not all of us, are likely to be successful. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to try to contain my excitement and remain a vaguely productive um, host here. But I, I almost feel like there should be two um, episodes, one about your um, maritime products and one about, um, I guess, the fracking activity. Um, what's the best way to bottom out each one? So I, I guess you started off with the energy trading problem. And I suppose one way to put it is um, increase the trade success rate or the expectancy value, if I can, if I'm using a, a correct technical term, um, for uh, um, the, I guess the 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 energy trades um, of Bill Perkins. Um, so was it opportunistic? Was it strategic? Why? Is there this second um, arm of the business about dark vessels, or are they somehow relevant to energy trading problems as well? Yeah. Um, so it actually came from Bill's humanitarian efforts. You know, Bill is an extremely, I'm talking about Bill Perkins, he's an extremely yeah. generous person. Um, yeah. He is, you know, I think per dollar of his wealth, more generous than anybody else. 
right? And he is very interested in particular in helping Africa. So he has a number of charitable efforts related to, um, you know, the various problems of Africa. And one of the biggest problems, especially in Western Africa, is illegal fishing. And Bill has wanted to try and help solve that problem as much as he can. But you know, I, I think something that's unique about Bill is he doesn't just give money towards the problem, which he certainly does. He also wants to try and contribute his unique talents towards it. Um, great example of this, and you know, another aside, um, is the Freedom on the Move effort that Bill did, where you know he took myself and other AI members of our team to try and help illuminate African American history from old newspaper ads. Um, and so that was an example of Bill taking a specialty, something that he has, right, this data science AI ability to interpret text at a large scale and contributing it to uniquely solve a problem that he's interested in solving. Um, and that same recipe is what brought us into dark shipping. So Bill's original intention with our maritime intelligence product, which is called Thea, was to try and identify the Chinese illegal fishing fleet. Um, and for those that don't know, the Chinese illegal fishing fleet is not, you know, um, a small operation of, of, you know, people in fishing boats going out without licenses and, and, you know, pulling out a few fish from the ocean. It is an armada of 27,000 vessels that are directly supported by the Chinese Communist Party with the state-sponsored goal of providing protein to China. And the way that they do that is they go into, they key in on countries where there are rich shipping, or I'm sorry, rich fishing resources, but there is not necessarily um, the- With poor enforcement. Yes, the enforcement the there in order to protect it. So they will go in and they will just go from Western African country to Western African country and yeah. just sweep, I mean, 27,000 vessels, yeah. just sweep the fish out of the water, right? So that was the birth of Thea is what can we do uh, to help solve this problem, right? Okay. Where does $1 go the furthest in stopping illegal fishing in Western Africa? Well, $1 can buy uh, a tiny amount of gasoline, maybe, for an enforcement vehicle. $1 can buy one one billionth of a, of a boat, right? But where $1 goes the furthest, our belief is in information. If you know exactly where the fishing fleet is in real time, all the time, then you right. can make whatever resources you have far more effective. You can send their single Coast Guard vessel um, in pursuit yes. of that. Right. That's right. Okay. Ready with handcuffs. All right. This is, yeah, it's wonderful to have a, yeah, an inspiring um, story um, on the podcast and yeah, a, a humanitarian application of our profession too. Um, a, a in at the same time or in the same breath as um, a genuine effort to to gain an edge in, in energy trading. For yeah, well, I mean, the problem extends so far, right? The problem is generally dark vessels, and it is a very, very broad problem. It's only one narrow scope of it that happens to be illegal fishing. Now, our path to discovering the problem, you know, the broader problem was through a humanitarian look at stopping illegal fishing. Um, you know, but once we discovered this larger problem, I mean, it, it only made sense that Synmax would pursue it because it helps both efforts. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, when we were lucky enough to get Brendan Moore to come in as CEO with all of his expertise and he tapped into his network. And, and you know, now we have this internal team of ex-military intelligence analysts who are trained. I, I swear to God, Will, you could look at a satellite photo for 45 minutes and not see what they see. They look yeah. at it and in a second they're like, oh, well, look, there's a there's a missile launcher there and there's this. And there. I'm like, what? It looks like pixels to me. It looks like noise. <laughs> it's incredible what the human mind can do when it's trained to do it. Um, so we have an internal team of ex-military analysts that uh, Brendan has brought in that have really allowed us to cut our learning edge, right? Talking about specialty. Yeah. 
So our tech team is in there learning from our military intelligence team, and they're just coming in trying to automate as much of what that team can do as possible. Well, if it's possible for this human being to be able to spot this in this noisy pixelated picture, can we train a machine to do it? And more often than not, the answer is yes. Good. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just aware that I've had a stupid grin on my my face for half this interview. It's just because, um, yeah, I'm sure like everybody it's else in the geospatial, what you guys are doing is, yeah, really awesome. Um, it sounds like you should have had some success um, in working backwards from customer needs. So then how fast, um, at least ballpark-wise, is customer growth? Um, so, you know, on the Hyperion side, which is our, our frat crew tracking product, uh, we have grown over 100% in the last six months in, in terms of customer acquisition. And this is a product that we only launched less than a year ago. I think we're just coming up on a year, right? So, um, you know, I, I don't want to disclose our financials, but uh, we believe that that product by itself could make us a profitable company, right? Despite the amount of money that we're pouring into the development of Thea. Now, Thea is a far less mature product, um, and it is a much larger technological undertaking. So we've spent a lot more time and money um, solving all those different problems, and Thea is just now getting ready for market. We're already in preliminary discussions with a number of different um, uh, potential customers, ranging from traditional maritime intelligence companies to insurance companies to, of course, the U.S. government being, um, you know, one of the... Um, big consumers for intelligence type products, no matter what they are. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that the path to getting um, a customer on the Thea side is a little bit longer because what we're creating is something completely new, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was both a bigger investment in solving those technical problems, but it's also, there is no template that currently exists to sell a product like ours. So we kind of had to invent the market at the same time that we invented the product. Which sounds like uh, the definition of what uh, Richard Koch in The Star Principle um, says you should do. It's best to invent and and therefore more easily dominate a niche. I I love the use of the word dominate. I I should use that more in my lexicon. Um, (laughs) We're 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 you know, so focused in the forest on the individual trees of trying to solve these little problems. Um, you know, it'd be nice to stick our head out and, and talk about dominating the market that we're creating. Um, but uh, I think I think as we're successful, yeah, um, we do have expectations to dominate. Yeah, I guess that reminds me of an interaction um, between my account on Twitter and I guess Sinmaxes, where there was a New York Times article about um, dark oil ships or oil tankers i think from iran uh perhaps going to china or or russia i can't remember which maybe more like china um so given that they're transporting hydrocarbons and an untracked large injection of hydrocarbons into a market um could presumably affect a price it sounds like you could relatively easily pick up um, customers from, I don't know, everyone from S&P Global down to whatever the other um, companies are that try to price commodities like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And by the way, I read the New York Times article. It was wonderful. They did a great job. And I think they showed, they relied pretty heavily in that article on satellite imagery, which is exactly 
our thesis for how, uh, you know, dark vessels get solved is through the use of mass ingestion of satellite imagery. So, you know, I think they kind of proved that thesis and showed the world that, yes, this is possible. Now, the difference between, you know, this article and what Synmax is doing is just the scale. The New York Times obviously threw a lot of human hours at it and a lot of research and had a lot of sources in order to piece together the story. Synmax is aiming to do that in a completely, completely automated fashion where, you know, we can track dark ships just like we can track light ships, right? And we can just, you know, look at a spreadsheet that says, Here's all the vessels that left Iran and went to China or left Russia and went to India, et cetera, et cetera. So um, getting onto your question, yes, th this is one of the ways that we can extract value out of Thea, and it is one that we're actively pursuing. So uh, we are currently in the middle of an acquisition of a company called Gas Vista. Uh, they are um, a New York-based company that has created a LNG tracking product called Leviathan. And LNG almost never goes dark because it has to come from and go to very expensive, well-regulated terminals, uh, gas liquefaction and gas regasification. Right, right? with Whereas massive oil, compressor trains linked up to them, yes. Yes, it costs many billions of dollars to create and maintain. So there's there's not as much shady stuff going on in the LNG market, right? Um, whereas oil, you can literally take it off of a ship and put it into a truck and, you know, like, okay. like and so, so the opportunity for oil to move around the world um, dark, and, and go completely undetected is much, much higher, and it does. Um, so our idea is we are going to begin marketing Leviathan to our existing base of um, gas customers, and we think that you know there's a natural over, uh, overlap there, but we're also going to transform Leviathan into an oil tracking product and feed in all of our dark oil data from Thea, which would make us the only provider of dark oil information in the world to energy traders. And you're absolutely right that it is extremely material. Oil is more of a global commodity, right? Um, natural gas, it has the benefit of uh, the benefit or the curse, right? At least from a trading perspective of being really ring fenced because it's so hard to move around. You could be three feet from the wellhead. And if you don't have a pipeline attached to it, there's no way you're going to be able to bridge that three feet, right? It has to stay in a very um, a specific, you know, pressure tested yeah. pipeline or it has to be liquefied and put on a ship anytime it moves around. So, so you can draw boxes around like the United States, for example, and say, here is a domestic natural gas market that for all intents and purposes can behave complete, completely independently of the other natural gas markets around the world, right? And then just say, you know, there, there is an outlet here for LNG, there is an outlet for exports to Mexico, there's an inlet for imports from Canada. Um, but, you know, my analysis can put constraints on those inlets and outlets, and I can, you know, treat the market like it is in complete isolation otherwise. Um, right. Oil does not have that benefit. It's a global commodity. So when additional barrels get produced in Venezuela or Iran, which are all dark barrels, um, it is going to affect Brent. It's going to affect WTI. Yeah. And so right. I think oil traders are hungry for this information because there's a lot of dark oil that moves around the ocean, a lot more than I think people realize. Okay, sorry. So I, every answer seems to result in a whole bunch of new directions I want to go in. Um, I, I was grinning before because, again, there's another theme that uh, relates here. I, I basically started my geosocial career on the Gladstone Liquid Natural Gas Substream project, which was doubling the size of a, a, a Santos gas field in uh, Queensland, a, a state in northeastern Australia. Um, and yeah, it was a, a, back in 2011, there was a race on essentially between three large international consortiums to be the first to, be, to build a compressor train um, to try to corner as much of the Japanese gas market as possible. Anyway, no, there's, there's all sorts of parallels all the time with all of this. It's really exciting. Hmm. Um, I'll tell right. you what the, 
biggest connection is between energy and Earth observation. And it's the fact that energy is a widely distributed system, right? There's no singular place that all the world's energy comes from. Like you said, a lot of it comes from Australia. A lot of it comes from the U.S. A lot of it comes from uh, Venezuela, Iran, you know, the Middle East, right? right? Like energy is all over the place. And so it makes Earth observation the perfect tool for analyzing it. Because it is so remote, there are no competing sensors for looking at it. Whereas Earth observation can cover enormous parts of the globe. Um, can, I, can, can I can I argue a little bit there? Sure. Would it be more productive to use the term Earth analysis? It sounds a bit kooky, but Earth analysis rather than Earth observation, because that gets to the point that um, I guess Will Cattle the CEO of Spark Geo made to return to my um, agenda <laughs> um, that really, and, and you've made the point too, nobody gives a damn about the pixels and nobody really understands them. Um, very few, it's, I, I don't think, uh, really know how to analyze them. Um, it's that people only really want to buy or put money down on the result of some analysis. Um, of what's coming down from all of these constellations. And the point of Synmax and the the part of the market that you have cornered um, is based on your capacity. <laughs> cornered anything, but yeah. Yeah, ahead. well, okay. Um, at least in terms of your frack tracking side of the business. We're, we're um, the first ones in it, but uh, yeah. I expect others are going to copy our success. Right. Um, but it's that you're better than others, or at least your average trader, you can give them the analysis that they need. I don't know where I was going with that question. Well, it's you, been a long day. A, yeah, no, I mean, you did make an interesting point earlier on, which is, you know, people don't want the pixels, they want the analysis. And in large part, I agree with it. Although, you know, to be completely fair, I want the pixels, right? <laughs> so I can turn them into the analysis. The, the amount of people that want pixels is much, 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 much smaller than the amount of people that want um, analysis. That's, That's part of the reason it. for the underperformance in. You don't yeah. like the term, you like earth, uh, uh, analysis, but earth observation stocks, right? Uh, right, and that's the problem. Cetera, they're all earth observation right? stocks, they're not pixels. earth analysis stocks. Yes, yes, they're all selling pixels. And, uh, you know, to their credit, I think Black Sky has done the most admirable job of any EO company I've seen of trying to get to that an analytics point. Um, and uh -huh. they've got a real innovative There's some team. alpha. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, I'm I'm not recommending stocks here. Don't don't rush off to your brokerage accounts, you know, after hearing this podcast. Um I, I just I, I just noticed that Black Sky seems to be investing a lot in that and they seem to have some success with it too. They've got a very impressive platform. Um but you know, I don't think that they will ever come close to capturing a hundred percent of that, right? It just it requires too much specialty knowledge. Okay. All right. So just to close off, I feel uh uh or to ad address a loose end um, with the dark fleets in this New York Times article. Um, so you said that Cinemax is moving towards um, a commercially viable product here. Do I recall correctly reading that you can offer at least thousands of square kilometers worth of detection of uh, dark ships at once, or is it a a global uh, product. Um, how much so of the ocean is, can I subscribe to, basically, um, yeah. through you? It is tens of millions of square kilometers okay. a day. So we are the largest purchaser of over-ocean imagery in the world, which, in the commercial sense, you know, because the ocean is two-thirds of the world, 
might make us the largest purchaser of pixels um, in the commercial world. Uh, right now, you can subscribe to something in that neighborhood, tens of millions of square kilometers. Our goal in the next 24 months is the entire ocean, and we think it's possible. The um, constellations currently in orbit and the constellations planning to launch, which we are in active conversations with, I think are going to make over ocean pixel coverage daily possible. That's incredible. So, I mean, again, there are so many questions. So what size of vessel? Yeah, it depends on the resolution. So, um, you know, the uh, um, planet scope five meter constellation, we feel like we can perform accurate detection at 10 meters uh, and we can perform accurate attribution at 30 meters and above. So the distinction being that detection, we can say, yes, there is a ship there, right? But we don't know who it is. And attribution being there's a ship there and it's XYZ vessel. Incredible. That yeah. implies that you're just, tracking it. Yeah. That's just the Planetscope constellation, right? Which which is the, the, the primary tool in the toolbox right now. There's a lot of constellations going up with much better resolution. Like Satellogic, for example, they are aiming to do what Planet has done with Planetscope, but at one meter resolution. Intense. Okay. So yeah. If you look at their, um, there's so much to track if you look here. At their, it's crazy. Yeah. If if you look at their investor presentation, they uh, have spun up or in the process of spinning up. I'll have to go back and check it. A facility that can create 120 satellites a year. Right. So their intention, the implicit intention of that, is that they're going to launch 10 satellites a month in perpetuity. Damn. Yeah. So yeah. I, wow. And that's at one meter resolution. That's incredible. There's so many more, you know, as as resolution goes up, you know, the applications scale exponentially. Yeah. Okay. So this is a, a really exciting space. I can, yeah, profitably yeah. mine this as a podcast, I think, uh, for the next yeah. few years. There, there's a lot of insular businesses that go into supporting that. One of the big ones is cloud computing. So um, as resolution goes up, you know, the amount of computational power it takes to process that. Uh, also goes up exponentially. Okay, so I should start tell tracking. You cloud bill is, but um, if this industry is growing, maybe the way to invest in it is to invest in. Uh, That's right. Uh, cloud providers, not necessarily. Picks and shovels. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so maybe because I have a number of sub indexes that I've broken the whole geospatial index into, perhaps I can look at because maybe there are some data science uh, data center companies that are specializing in um, Earth observation data streams. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not okay. aware of anybody that is specializing just in Earth observation, but there are definitely companies paying attention to it. Um, so Amazon has a space services portal, so AWS, right? And full disclosure, I'm not a part of it. I'm a part of Google Cloud, and you know my reasons are my reasons, right? It, it's, it comes down to a, a big mosaic of different factors that we're all weighed against each other to decide which cloud we're going to operate on. Um, but I think there are entities taking notice. Again, um, yeah, so many different directions and, and things to chase, which is which is good. I feel like um, this is a productive exercise um, running running this podcast. Well, uh, okay, AI came up. Um, is it is it a fad, or is it actually meaningful uh, for Cinemax? Uh, which part? Artificial intelligence, uh, generative yeah. AI, generative geospatial. Um, is it all going to die down um, and be, I don't know, big data? What the hell are you talking about? That's still now we've passed on from that. Is it going to be like that or is it actually going to be useful? 
Yeah, I, th- I think there's an interesting dichotomy going on here. I think it is possible for it to both be extremely useful and revolutionary and also way overhyped. <laughs> and the best analog I can think of is the 2000 uh, dot-com bust, right? Where everybody knew the internet was going to be big. Everybody knew the internet was going to change. Well, almost everybody. I think Paul Krugman uh, held out for way too long. <laughs> um, but almost everybody knew the internet was going to absolutely change the world. That turned out to be completely correct. However, that did not make 2000s-era.com stocks a good investment, right? And every investor should remember this and keep this in mind, right? Just because you believe you have the prescience to see that something is blowing up and becoming big does not mean that the available public equities are the best place to capitalize on that. Um, And I think that's the situation we're in right now. I think valuations on AI buzzy companies are way too high. There is an excess of inflows going into them, and it is very likely a bubble. But at the same time, I believe that AI is an amazing tool, right? Synmax uses it all the day, all day, every day. We have what I believe are some of the best AI engineers in the world working for us. Um, and we see the potential of the current technology, and we also see the trajectory of the technology getting better and better and further improving data analysis. Um, so it is, it is a little bit of a tale of, of two different pictures here, where I would, you know, as an investor, be very, very careful about allocating dollars to that end. Um, but as a chief technology officer, I'm extremely excited about the potential of the tech. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, I, I guess I, it might be like asking Coke for their recipe. Maybe you you won't want to disclose too much. Um, but does Synmax see any value in GPT-4? Are you using other large language? Do you use large language language models at all? Um, Every day, or is it? Okay, right. <laughs> I think I think that GPT models and GPT-4 is a great example of it. Bard is also pretty damn impressive. I haven't decided which one's better. I subscribe to GPT-4, and Bard is completely free, and it does a really good job too. Um, I think that these are tools of extreme leverage. I think that they turn an average programmer into an above average programmer, right? When used correctly, they can improve your efficiency and make you far better at your job. And so everybody at Synmax has a subscription to OpenAI, right? And we use these tools regularly and we talk about in our daily standups and weekly meetings about how we're using these tools and ways we found to improve our efficiency. So Okay, so for example, as a co-pilot, yeah, yeah. Uh, Copilot is, is is one great way to use it. I haven't personally used it. Uh, a lot of our developers swear by it. And in our last all hands meeting, one of our developers gave a presentation on how he uses it. And after I heard that, I'm like, I, I got to check this out. I got to get the, the the pie charm added. Y- yes, I'm CTO. I, I still love to code every now and then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good to know, too. <laughs> I'll, I'll never yes. give up that part of my job. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, right. Again, it could. It, I feel like there's a whole podcast there, um, but uh, we should move through at least to the final one, um, so sure, we can before, at least before say. We put, gears, can I say yeah. one more thing about AI? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Go for it. I do not subscribe to the belief that AI is a uh, job stealing technology, right? I think this claim that technology is going to destroy jobs is an argument that has been made for over a hundred years, with every Absolutely. single step Absolutely. in technological development, right? You know. 
all the way from when we were mostly an agricultural economy and uh, farm machines, right? One farm machine can now do the job of 20 men, right? So, you know, therefore, let's linearly extrapolate that. And the entire country is going to be out of work. Well, no, we just moved into the cities and we became more of an industrial economy, right? And then the improvements in industrialization said, okay, well, now we're going to replace all of these jobs, right? Nope, we just became more of a service economy, right? And then outsourcing, right? Said, now we're going to replace all these jobs. Nope, we just high graded our, our um uh, um, our service economy. So, you know, that is a prediction which is too easy to fall into because it's a fragile logic chain. If this, then this, then this, then this, then this, mm. then oh my God, look at that, right? And if mm. any any little piece of the logic chain falls apart along the way, then the entire argument falls apart. And is it's another almost, way it's to look at it. That something yeah, maybe another way to look at it is that new technology unleashes new demand. Um, yes, I would agree with that. And I would also say that new technology um, simply creates leverage for human beings to do more. And there's no cap on GDP, right? Um, there is there is no theoretical, there is no physical cap on what humans can achieve. Um, mm. So, so you know, the only idea where um, AI would destroy jobs, right, is if we reach the absolute peak of human potential and AI surpasses it, and then humans have nothing left to do. Um, you know, and then you could have either a complete utopia or a complete dystopia. Yeah. Right? I, <laughs> but I, I think we're really far away from that. If I'm honest, I'm kind of inspired by the idea of, I mean, I, I'm, I'd like to think one of the most hardcore atheists out there, but at the same time, there's a little spark in me. I feel like it's it, at the risk of sounding cringeworthy. There's something sacred about nurturing a new intelligence and it's something to, to be proud of. I feel like it's a real achievement. Yeah, yeah, and and I, you know, I think we could debate the semantics of whether or not it actually is intelligence or whether it's right. Just, Absolutely, know, I'm down for that debate. Whatever, right? Um, but I think that your heart, to use another spiritual analogy, is is definitely in the right place, and in, in that you're feeling a sense of responsibility for what we're building. Yeah, it's all about like it's and and for heaven's sake, like we're never going to send our carbon-based um, uh, vessel um, that is the means by which our uh, DNA propagates from one generation to the next. You know, we're never going to send that out into space. We're going to have to Such find... Such an eloquent an way to describe a human body, a carbon-based <laughs> vessel which propagates DNA. <laughs> well, basically, we're a, we're a gene replicator, right? You know, we're a short-lived... Oh, uh, yeah. what, what was the quote from Dawkins? A, a short-lived... Um, vessel for long-lived genes or whatever the term the phrase was oh yeah yeah i, I read selfish gene a while ago i get what it was um but regardless if an intelligence can be sustained using a different um i guess machine different under underlying machinery in the end it's the same yeah there's something sad about uh <laughs> thinking that the only thing left of humanity will be, you know, uh, the the machines that we create and continue propagating on. Um, but I suppose that um, it comes down to the idea of quality being something innate. Um, that you know, I I believe this personally, and I you know like to tell people who work for me about this that you know the quality that you put into something is something inseparable from yourself. When you create a brilliant piece of code, when you create a brilliant product, when you um, create something that is beautiful. Um, and the quality shines through, that is actually a manifestation of yourself. Um, right. Quality can be traced all the way back to its original owner. And and so in that sense, um, the machine can be traced all the way back to humanity, and it would be a piece of humanity propagating forward. 
if that is a way to somehow still make it okay um, that an intelligence at a broader scale might have emerged, um, maybe that's that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah but again, maybe. I, we're, we're getting into science fiction here, uh, which I love, <laughs> um, but I'm afraid I, I haven't given much thought to a lot of this. Yeah, I, I think I might need to to have the, the necessary bandwidth to have a meaningful discussion about this. I think it might have to be at the beginning of the day rather than the end. <laughs> Yeah, we're um, fully caffeinated. Yeah, but no, I also really appreciate the fact that um, you have the time um, for this level of philosophy. Um, and uh, I think it yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like to read. I consider myself a voracious reader. And, you know, I, like I said, read Selfish Gene and read Zed and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, you know, and person's idea of quality. <laughs> um, and it's it's it doesn't necessarily contribute to my career in any way, but it doesn't have to. It, it's something special about being human is having your own opinions about big ideas like this. Maybe it's the only thing that will mean that one has a meaningful career and that the business that you're engaged in will be a good one. I, I, I think I think it's important to love what you do. I think it's. Um, I'm also meaning it's about ethics. Like, yeah. if you are proceeding without an awareness awareness of philosophy and the deeper things, maybe you and the business that you're running will be more susceptible um, to doing the wrong thing and not be capable very, of nurturing. Yeah, it's a very, very difficult road to trot, in my opinion, when you start missing um, mixing business and ethics because you've got definitely at the incentives. risk of getting into preaching here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think that there is a tremendous risk that a lot of companies are pushing into, uh, claiming to be completely ethical while also profitable because not every situation allows you to optimize fully on those two variables. And my expectation is that Entities that claim to optimize fully on ethics and profit are probably going to fully optimize on profit and then just justify the ethics. And that that actually puts you in, my view, a worse ethical position than if you had just focused on profit. Um, I believe that there is a problem with companies trying to serve two masters that are actually serving themselves um, and just using the uh, excuse that they are inherently ethical organizations as a means for committing worse atrocities. Um, I think we are better off when we have well-defined roles for corporations and expectations. And we say, I understand that you have a perverse incentive towards profit, and that means I'm gonna be all the more critical of you. And yep. when companies come out and say, oh, I'm gonna be a, a part of stakeholder capitalism, and I'm going to do good, um, you know, what they're really saying is I am above judgment. So don't look at everything that I'm doing. Because here I'm pushing out some meaningless lip service towards, you know, popular ideas. Yeah, um, great. Well, dangerous, very dangerous well put. Path. Yes. And I guess that's, yeah, I'm, I feel I'm, I'm witnessing, yeah, um, that in action. Um, anyway, all right, cool. So I think we've gathered enough ammunition to answer the final question. Um, in the UK, it's possible to undertake a geospatial apprenticeship. So what quality skills or ambitions should an apprentice have to do well at Synmax? Yeah, um, I would say there are three qualities that are essential for succeeding at Synmax. The first one is honesty, because I cannot solve for a deficiency in honesty. 
right? Every other character component of an employee I can solve for. Um, if you're good at X, but you're bad at Y, then I'm going to put you on X. But honesty is something that cannot be fixed. So if you're dishonest, I can't find any place for you, right? Um, the second one is you must be intellectually curious. Sinmax does not have a carved in stone roadmap for the next hundred years. We expect that the best opportunities may emerge out of nothing. And so we need a team that is constantly curious and looking for them, right? Um, and the final one is intellectual humility. Um, do not for a moment think that you're smarter than you actually are. Um, it's fine to recognize your own achievement, but if you develop hubris, you also develop blinders. So that's, I know that's yeah. that's that's really really high level. You were like, look, no. dude, I was looking like you're good at Python. Like, yeah, some of, some <laughs> of them have been that. about the tech stack. No, but that's yeah. that's great. This is these are really great watch. themes for a youngster. <laughs> yeah, I, I especially appreciate the one about hubris. Um, no, it's so. a huge problem in energy trading. I'm sure all trading. Is <laughs> you're right, and that's about behavioral finance. There was a whole yes. previous podcast I ran with a, a colleague in Australia um, because we both did. Um, a, a, a online investing course at Stanford um, together. And then we realized through that, the only thing holding you back really, and Warren Buffett says it, I hate quoting Warren Buffett because everybody does, but um, managing your, your own hubris um, is your key to success. So yeah, appreciate you um, uh, reflecting that theme as well. Yeah, um, there are a lot of extremely smart people in energy trading. People... 10 times smarter than me. And the most predictable factor to their downfall is their lack of humility. Um, when they start believing the hot hand fallacy that every idea that pops out of their head need not be scrutinized because they are just so brilliant, um, they're pretty certain to have that bite them in the ass some point in the future. Honest, I, it's really, it's exciting for me just to be interviewing a CFA, um, and I don't want to yeah. put you on a pedestal, but I, I didn't think that would come up. I don't think I could ever survive um, that kind of uh, an exam. So I'm. Oh, yeah. I barely did. That was a hell of an exam, and uh, if I could go back in time, I probably wouldn't do it all over again. Thank you for the compliment, by the way. But I no. don't feel like the CFA produced as much value in my career as I expected it to. Um, and it's it's no fault of the CFA. I think it's just a fault of uh, uh, the changing financial industry. Um, right. When I was in college a long, long time ago, and I was studying finance, right, we studied all the principles of finance, but something we didn't study was programming, right? That was a different discipline. And now finance and programming are 100% intertwined with each other. Really, you know, anybody wanting to get into finance should at least minor in computer science. Um, so I have... You know, produced a lot more value for my career in finance alone, right? Not even talking about my current position in Earth observation by uh, improving my programming acumen than by getting a CFA by far. Uh, there you go. Well, there's a good tip um, from for anybody in the the finance world that is hopefully listening yeah to this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, it's just the data sets have grown so large, right? It used to be a running joke about the world financial system you know, relying on Microsoft Excel. And that was 100% true. But, you know, Microsoft Excel taps out at about a million rows, right? And these data sets that hedge funds are using now to analyze are in the hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of rows of data. There's just so much more data available. You must be proficient 
in a data science tool like Python or R or SQL or preferably all three in order yeah. to compete in that. It is yeah. merely a prerequisite. Hmm. Yeah, no, I can say the same goes for for really uh, geospatial and what's more becoming these days, um, spatial or geospatial data science. Um, it's all kind of just data science with different facets these days, I feel. So yeah, when, when it's in that realm, it's yeah, R, SQL, Python, yeah. All right, well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to leave it there. I guess you've got other things to do. Um, awesome, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. And you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too, Eric, appreciate the contact.